Welcome to She Said, LUK's first ever podcast series. Broadcasting from the LUK fashion cupboard. I'm Hannah Swirling, Elle's Features Editor. Hi and welcome to the Living in Oblivion episode of She Said, our new Elle podcast. Uh, Let me just quickly set the scene. I'm surrounded by lots of lovely, shiny things, uh, beautiful clothes, accessories, shoes. um, And I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Heppler. She's a writer and editor and she has written this brilliant feature living in oblivion for the january issue of l and sarah is joining us via skype in texas hi sarah hi there i'm also joined by uh, l's culture director lena de casparis hi lena hi there how you doing very good so sarah if you could just start by telling us a little bit about your piece i wrote a story about how do you know when casual fun binge drinking has tipped into a drinking problem You know, and the thing is, is that it can be very tricky to determine, and it really depends on the individual. You know, I drank for years, and I think people saw me as a fun, good times girl who kept it all under control, but I was hiding a lot of pain and fear. And I think sometimes we talk about drinking like they're two separate camps. There's this fun, liberating drinking, and then there's this scary, alcoholic drinking. And what I found in my own life was that I actually just took a slow slide from one of those ends of the spectrum to the other. Would you refer to yourself now as a recovering alcoholic? Is that right? I would. Um, One of the things that's tricky about it is like if you take tests for what makes you an alcoholic, some of them will say, well, do you drink every day? And you'll say, well, yes, but that doesn't make me an alcoholic because you look around you and everyone else does. And normal is defined by people around you. And we live in a drinking culture where binge drinking is normalized. And a lot of the things around binge drinking are drinking to get drunk, having blackouts, um, waking up with a hangover, and maybe drinking in the morning. And all of these things will be on a test for whether or not you're an alcoholic. And so that can be, it can be both troubling and it can also make you dismiss those tests Mm -hmm. where you're like, this is ridiculous, I'm not an alcoholic. Probably the biggest flags for knowing that you have a drinking problem is trying to quit and being unable. So in other words, um, when you recognize, oh, I have a problem and I should cut back, and then you try to cut back and you can't. We were talking um, amongst the team about our own kind of drinking CVs, if you will. And I sort of drank quite a bit in my teens and then I got to university where there is such a huge drinking culture Mm. and we used to go out and drink vodka red bulls I mean that's basically sort of rocket fuel and refined sugar when I used to drink tons and tons of that and I would black out I think Sarah in your piece you talk about the fact that there's kind of 50% of people actually black out and I was in that percentage and we laughed about it the next morning but the idea now looking back is quite horrifying to me and now I just I just can't tolerate a lot of alcohol and I would say it wasn't for university for me it was post university when I was kind of first job kind of really going off the highs of the day and then just like going out on a Friday night having finished a week at work you know to the point where I just remember getting into the shower on a Saturday morning and you would have scrapes and bruises and when I look back at that period I kind of realised I was quite insecure about my job. The guy I was dating definitely wasn't into me and every time I saw him I had to get so hammered just to kind of feel okay in his presence. But at the time, 
I think I just thought, well, I'm 25, I'm just having a laugh. Sarah, listening to all of us sort of recounting our, t- our stories, which, you know, thankfully we can sort of look back and say, oh, but, you know, it was all fine in the end. Like, what's your take? Well, I mean, my primary reaction is how much I relate to it. The thing is, is what we're hitting on in some ways is how incredibly versatile a drug alcohol is and how many fixes it it gives to you. You know, I was a woman who was extremely self-conscious in her own body. I had weight issues and alcohol gave me that um, wonderful feeling of sexiness that I had craved so much. I also was a woman that really had a lot of trouble finding my own voice and alcohol felt like it gave me the bravado that I had been longing for. I love and remember my drinking years in university too and I think that's an age when kids are really trying to negotiate their freedoms. I mean that is sort of the struggle in a Western democracy, right, is you have the right to drink. So how much are you going to? It's up to you. Like you get to decide. And part of that is running out to the edge and seeing what it feels like. And hopefully you come back. Now, in my life, I didn't. I remember leaving university and being like, I'm not going to drink like that anymore. And the truth is I drank more and more because what had happened to me was that the only way I knew how to disrupt these uncomfortable feelings in me was alcohol. I mean, it wasn't just when I had bad feelings, it was when I had good feelings. Like, like alcohol was what I did when I wanted to celebrate, it was what I did when I wanted to commiserate, it was what I did when I was alone, <laughs> you know, because I was feeling lonely. So it became this incredibly versatile fix for everything in my life, and what happens when you only have one fix is that starts to take over, and again, you know, you lose control of it and the drink is controlling you. What was happening in your career and in your friendships and relationships? As far as my career goes, my career was flourishing. And I think this was an excuse I used to say that I was not having a problem. You know, I was a writer. People liked when I wrote stories about being kind of a busted up drunk. They're funny stories and people laughed at them. And we have created this situation where like the cool girl persona is one who drinks and falls down the stairs sometimes and she laughs about it later. Um, It's always tough to know when you have a drinking problem, but one really good way is to watch your friends (laughs) because they will start to be barometers for you when you have tipped too far. And my friends started to inch away from me. And that was so hurtful because I thought it was something we all did. You know, because it is for so long. It's like, come on, you guys, everybody drinks too much. And what they were telling me was, even in our circle of people that drink too much, you're drinking that much more. I've certainly had examples where I've had a friend in a friendship group where you can see she's going through a tough time. You can noticeably see she's getting kind of shit-faced a lot more. And, you know, and then you kind of, you do, you have these conversations with your other friends where you're like, God, she's never going to get another guy if she keeps on getting this drunk. And then you feel like a bitch for saying that. So then you're like, well, she should be allowed to drink as much as she wants. Like, who are we to say that she can't drink as much as she wants? And then it's like, well, should we sit her down? But then if we sit her down, does it seem like we're forming some form of intervention, like, you know, some Hollywood film? When my my friends um, confronted sounds like too harsh of a word, but when they came to me and told me that they were worried, they didn't say you're drinking too much, you had 10 drinks. You know, like they didn't give me a number that I could argue with and then it became about an accusation. They told me, I'm scared for you, I'm worried, Mm -hmm. Um, are you okay? And one of the terrors is that no one will wanna hang out with you if you're not drinking because you won't be any fun. And 
so that's a pretty brutal reality when somebody who cares and loves you tells you I will spend time with you even if you're not drinking that's not what makes you my friend that's very meaningful You're listening to She Said, a podcast from LUK, broadcasting from the LUK fashion cupboard. One of the things I wanted to talk about was that idea of fast-tracked intimacy, because I think, Lena, we talked a little bit, we had a very illuminating conversation um, in the L offices where Lena was talking about um, being hammered and dating. I'm pretty sure throughout my early 20s when I was dating, I can't really remember having sober sex very often. I certainly don't remember going on many sober dates. I mean, maybe there would be a hungover date the next day where you're probably still quite drunk. And I guess now I look at that and I go, oh God, is that awful? But actually like, it, at the time it just felt completely normal and I spoke one of my male friends recently gave up alcohol for three months and he said he then started going on dates with women who were then getting quite drunk throughout the dates and he said he was really having problems having sex with them because suddenly he was there and he could suddenly see the impact that alcohol was having on her and so then he would be like well okay let's neither of us drink and we'll go on a date and then they would both be that sat there kind of very awkwardly going well okay let's go for a walk or to a gallery um this is a bit weird and now we're touching each other naked (laughs) and it just didn't really seem to work and he was like it was really interesting how much we rely on alcohol and i think he's noticed something really fascinating in the culture which is that you know basically my romantic strategy for years and years was get drunk and see what happens casual sex is actually a high-stakes endeavor I'm gonna take the most vulnerable parts of my body and rub them against your vulnerable parts of your body and we're gonna do that the first day we meet how are we gonna make that happen well if you add a lot of alcohol that's gonna solve that social problem so you basically have a situation where you know we need alcohol to get to that place where we feel comfortable with it. Not everybody, by the way, mm. not everybody. Some people are very comfortable with casual sex and they're very comfortable with their body. But I know that I was not, and the way that I made myself feel sexy and um, desirable and wild, like I could have sex like a porn star, and all these things that I thought were expected of me. And by the way, this is also how I made the guy across from me not seem, like, seem a lot more attractive. You know, so you have that situation on one hand, and then um, you talked about the issue of consent. Um, We have a problem where for a very long time, there was a very bad idea that if you got drunk um, and you were taken advantage of, you were the one to blame. Unfortunately, we have a lot of forces working to disrupt that idea right now. It's, um, you know, <laughs> there, there needs to be a lot more attention paid on men and the aggressors and male entitlement behind that. At the same time, I think it's a mistake to divorce alcohol from this conversation because alcohol is very much the thing that women do in order to get themselves to a place of not caring. Like, that is what we socially agreed is okay. I drank to change what I would consent to. Out of interest, Sarah, now that, you know, you don't drink anymore, can you just tell us a little bit about how it's changed things? Because I was always doing that thing where I was reaching for the drink instead of kind of sitting with the uncomfortable feelings, it's given me a much more stable sense of confidence, um, security in myself, 
feel a lot better about myself. Uh, and I don't have these shame spirals that happen from 4 to 7 a.m. when I wake up after a blackout. I ended up uh, turning to AA, and it, it really saved my life. I mean, I really resisted it, and I, I had a lot of the, um, the kind of mental blocks against it that I think are pretty classic ones. You know, I thought, oh, this place is creepy, it's a cult, it's full of cliches. And I think one of the reasons why AA has endured is that... Um, all those things I just mentioned are, are peripherals. First of all, it's not a cult. That's silly. But the essential of AA is drunks helping other drunks. It's, I was there. Let me help you. It's a storytelling community. You know, you go to those rooms and people will tell you stories about their lives. And I became very intoxicated by that. You know, I felt, um, I felt kind of drawn in by the humanity of that, you know, that, that, feeling of, of carrying shame around with you and then you go into a room and someone tells you a story and you say me too and that incredible bonding experience of oh me too oh me too and and this happened when I was drinking too by the way like oh I was so embarrassed I fell down the stairs oh I've done that too me too me too is a really really powerful phrase and I found that in AA people find it other places You're listening to She Said, a podcast from LUK. Visit luk.com forward slash podcasts to subscribe. What I found interesting was the idea of teetotalers at the moment. And there are studies that show that 40% of young adults aren't drinking and half of the nightclubs around the UK have closed in the last 10 years. And I think there has been a massive shift in our drinking culture and I kind of put it down to the fact that everyone's really busy on Instagram and Facebook to sort of go out drinking. I read a piece this morning which was saying that because of Instagram we are all so scared of what is going to be posted of us the next day. Evidence. Exactly, evidence that we are no longer behaving in the carefree way and she was saying it's been the ruin of fashion parties. You know, she said once upon a time you would go to the front row at Fashion Week and everyone would have, like, nipples and their <laughs> knickers on display. And now, because everyone's very aware that everything you're doing is under the watch of Periscope or Instagram, that you suddenly are not willing to do that anymore. So maybe that plays a part in it. I think it's even more fundamental than that in terms of, I think the internet is the primary social network. I mean, I think it's not the bars. You know, you used to have to go to the bars to meet people, and now you have Tinder. But, you know, I think that this next generation, their primary relationship and probably their primary addiction is going to be technology. You don't have to worry about what you look like when you're on the Internet, and you don't have to worry about what you sound like, and you can present yourself in a certain way. And, you know, all these things that we need alcohol to do, we talked about how uncomfortable we are in how we look. Well, you can sit in your bed in your pajamas and sex with somebody, and nobody will know the difference. Alcohol's like a Valencia mm. filter, but in real life, mm. basically. Exactly. <laughs> I tried, I don't know if anyone else has tried, you can Google these videos that you put headphones on, and apparently they get you digitally drunk and high. Has anyone seen no, them? No. Anyhow... Vice did a piece about them and I then obviously tried immediately. Of course you did. Um, I mean, it just makes you feel a bit tingly, but there's certainly some form of impact, but maybe they'll get them better and we'll all be able to get technologically <laughs> drunk rather than real. As part of 
part of this podcast series, we really care about what's trending in your world. And we also want to tell you a little bit about what's trending in our worlds right now. So we're going to be asking all of our guests on She Said to recommend what they're reading, watching, seeing, doing. So let's kick off, Sarah. What are you going to recommend to everybody today? I'm going to recommend a movie that came out on DVD this month in the UK that's one of my favourite movies of the year, which is the Amy documentary, which of course is a documentary of Amy Winehouse. And that is tied to this to what we're talking about today, which is women and drinking. But you know, one of the things that you see in that movie is the way that addiction takes the light from somebody's eyes. Uh, it is the most stunning depiction of that I've ever seen. And I think it's just a fascinating movie. I loved it. Okay, I really want to recommend a book to everybody. It's called Foreskin's Lament. It's by Shalom Auslander. It is the funniest book. I was laughing out loud pretty much from start to finish. It's about this guy um, who is raised in a God-fearing religious Jewish family in New York and he grows up and sort of breaks free from that world and he spends a lot of the time talking to God and kind of saying like screw you and it is absolutely hilarious very funny and um, I won't give too much more away but go read it immediately okay so I'm going to recommend a graffiti artist that I've been seeing around London I've been kind of seeing her work around Holborn or I assumed it was a her she paints these kind of abstract impressionist faces. Anyhow, I looked her up and her name's Anna Lurani, L-A-U-R-I-N-I. And apparently she's from Milan and she's been quite prolific in London and New York. It's been really cheering me up seeing her work on the way to work every day. So look out for her when you're going around London. So do check out Sarah Heppler's brilliant piece, Living in Oblivion, in the January issue of Elle. You've been listening to She Said, the LUK podcast. Visit luk.com forward slash podcasts to subscribe. That was a Boom Shakalaka production for LUK. LUK.